Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. My, my, my. (laughs) If you can find it, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 23 and 24. Genesis 23 and 24. That is where we will continue our study today. We have been in a study, today is the eighth part in this ongoing study that we are calling Patriarchs and Matriarchs. We've been attempting to learn something from our ancient mothers and fathers of the faith about how to walk in the way of faith from those who have done it before. The beauty is we have at our disposal the collective cumulative experiences of normal, regular human beings like our ancient mothers and fathers who have attempted to do the very same thing we're attempting to do, live (laughs) and live faithfully and to make life matter and to find where life matters in this one who we are drawn to, our Lord, our Savior. And so we learn something from them and along the way we see where they have succeeded and fallen And we learn something, hopefully, about our own journey based on what they learned. And and maybe even if we stop short of that, if, if, if we only are able to at least connect our story to a common struggle that they have, then our hearts will be encouraged and 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 we'll have the strength to make it one more day at a time because we recognize there is coming a day when there is no more night. There is. But along the way, while night remains, as we move toward that great day when there is no more night, we need to learn how to walk faithfully. And that's why we turn to our sisters and brothers, our mothers and fathers of the faith, as they teach us something. Now, we're going to be deeply in this text in just a few moments, but we're going to begin with a bit of a summary Today's text will be over two chapters, and I hope that you are taking the opportunity to read the homework assignments. You'll notice at the bottom right hand of your worship guide, underneath the notes section, there is uh, an assignment of the upcoming text for next Sunday. There always is, and, and you have the opportunity, and I hope you're taking it each night to read the chapter that's coming up. Sometimes it's one or two chapters and read it on Monday night, and then Tuesday, go back and read the same two chapters, and on Wednesday, the same two, so that when we gather together on Sunday morning, we have been immersed in story, and we have been immersed in the Word, and then the sermon will arise out of some portion, and today it will arise out of all parts of both of these chapters. Chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, and today... We're going to cover as much as we can possibly cover. Here is the basic scenario. Sarah has died. 
the matriarch, Abraham's wife. God comes to Abraham and Sarah and promises a life, and that life is the fullest, most glorious version of life possible. Your life in me, if you follow me, will be a pilgrimage, an adventure that has risks and heartache and struggle, but oh, there will be great reward because you will find in every step of your journey my own company, my presence with you, and yes, you will have children, and yes, you will have land, and yes, you will have a name that no one will forget. They'll keep talking about you for the ages to come she's dead she's now died and we have to deal with that in chapter 23 all of chapter 23 is attempting to deal with the very deliberate decisions of after death business and anybody who's buried a loved one anybody who has lost a loved one to death understands there's a lot of after death business isn't there I mean, you got to decide on questions about who and where and what and where will the burial take place and where do you send the flowers. There is a lot of after-death business that happens, and there in chapter 23 is, is a lot of that. And Abraham is looking for a place to bury his beloved, his wife, the first matriarch. But you remember that he and Sarah are both pilgrims and strangers in this foreign land in Canaan. They have no place permanently, and so he has to purchase a land, a plot of land where he can bury his wife, so he begins asking around. But the the interesting thing is they are so well-revered and so well-loved that by now a name is beginning to make his pathway clear. They know him and respect him. And when he begins to ask about where he can bury his wife, several people offer. They say, look, you don't have to purchase the land. Just go bury your dead. Bury her where you will. And he says, no, 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 I I will pay. I want to pay for the land, and we're going to bury her in a a, a proper place. And then he says, "Um, you know what? There is one name. Uh, Remember the the man who owned the the land at the the end of the field? Uh, What was his name? Uh, As he checks his notes to find his name. (laughs) You know, the dude. Ephron, Ephron. You remember Ephron? Ephron. Y'all know Ephron. From uh, Machpelah. Ephron from Machpelah. He was the guy who owned the cave at the end of the field. Ask him if I can purchase that cave for, for my wife. Well, Ephron was in the crowd when he said that out loud. It was a crowd that he was speaking to. Ephron steps forward out of the crowd. It's a very public moment. It's very public, and I want to say even a kind of political moment. He steps forward in front of everybody and says, Oh, I'm here. You don't have to purchase anything from me. This is not a time to talk business. Now is a time for grief and sorrow. Abraham, you can take the land. Just take it and bury her. And Abraham says, no, I want to pay. In fact, this is what Ephron says. He says, no, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I I give you the cave that's in it. In the presence of my people, I give it to you. In the presence of my people. See how noble I am? Go and bury your dead. And and Abraham says, no, I will pay you. I just need to know what it's worth. And he says, no, no. And he continues on. He says, "Uh, no, 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 shh, there, there. Abraham, let's not speak of business. No, no, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land, which, by the way, is worth 400 shekels of silver. (laughs) What is that between you and me? Go bury your dead. 
In other words, what's 400 bucks between us, you know? There's comedy in the story if you have the ears to hear it. And he pays for the land and he buries Sarah in a cave at Machpelah. And the text says, and this is where it's really interesting. The text says, he buries Sarah in the cave at Machpelah just east of Mamre. Does that name, Mamre, ring a bell to you? If Mamre serves... Where were you on that one, Don? No, I'm kidding. Okay, all right. If Mamre serves, it was at the oaks of Mamre beneath those great trees where Sarah heard that she was going to give birth. It was there that she became aware with her husband Abraham beneath the oaks of Mamre that she was going to give birth to the promise of God. And now at Mamre, she will be buried. Do you know that there is a fine line, and sometimes it blurs, between birth and burial? There is a fine line between being born and being buried. In this journey of faith, that line sometimes blurs. What does it mean to be born? What does it mean to die? And for resurrection people, what does it mean to be born again? Sometimes at funerals, I will often tell the story because I love it, and it's just a a truth-telling story, that John Claypool talked about that fuzzy line between being born and being buried, between birthing and dying. He said, if you want to get your head around this great mystery of death about what happens to us when we die, it's so confusing, it's mystical, it's mysterious, but if you really want to understand something about death, you have to think about what happens to us when we're born. Because when a baby is born, if everything has gone well and everybody's healthy and it's been planned and everything is is as it should be, then when the baby is born, everyone in the room is filled with joy. When a baby's born, there's life, there's new life, there's promise, and everybody is laughing and smiling and celebrating, except for the baby. According to the baby's perspective, something has gone terribly wrong, right? Everything was just fine for nine months, and and comfortable and dark had all the food that she needed without having to lift a finger for herself, even had at night this nice rhythmic sound by which to go to sleep. And now there's all this squeezing and contracting, this blinding light, and some guy she's never met smacking her on the backside saying, breathe, breathe. To everybody in the room, it's birth. It's something to celebrate. But to the baby, it's not birth. To her perspective, it is death. The death of the life she used to know. But everybody in the room knows it's different. Everybody in the room knows there's a fine line between the death of what used to be and the birth of something mysterious and gloriously new. 
And that same pattern repeats again and again all throughout the lifespan because she will grow up and she becomes a teenager and then maybe she becomes a young adult and it's time to launch into life and she goes to college or begins a career or gets married and and the parents at some level begin to grieve because life is now different. It's not the way it used to be. They're grieving the death of the way the life rhythms of the house used to be. It's not the same as it used to be and there's sadness because it's the death of a thing but she knows better. She knows it's not death. This is the birth of something new, the birth of life and independence and freedom and purpose. And that pattern repeats again and again because there is a fine line between death and birth, and sometimes it blurs. So why wouldn't it be the case that when someone dies the final death, when we look at it and see nothing but the end of something, It might be actually the beginning of something mysterious and gloriously new. Sarah is buried in a cave at Machpelah, just east of Mamre, the same place where the thing in her was born. Now she has died, leaving the reader to ask a significant question. At the end of chapter 23, we begin to read a significant question into the text because now she's dead, now she's buried, and the question is, will the promise live? She was the one. It was through her that she would give birth to this promise and nations will come from your womb and there will be so many like the stars of the sky, the text would say, right? So with her being dead, will the story, will the promise live past her? I think it's a powerful story or a powerful question to ask ourselves because isn't that the same question that we ask ourselves whenever you and I come to a place where the promised version of our life is threatened? I mean, we get married and there's much promise. We have children, there's much promise. We, we, we begin a career, we move to a new place, and we, we start with promise. But the moment those parts of our promised life become vulnerable and they become challenged or even threatened, the question that that puts us to bed at night is, will the promise live? I mean, we even ask that same kind of question when it comes to being people of faith. Some people, and maybe those who are in this room, maybe there are some who are on the edge of faith because you, you, you tinker with faith because you want to believe, but the trouble is, You believe the promise of Christ? You believe that Christ offers a life that is abundant and full of redemption and peace and steadiness of heart? You you believe the promise of Christ that there can be reconciled relationships and there can be a kind of steadiness to life despite the storms? You believe that, but what happens when you take that promise on and yet life feels like everything but those things? He promises peace but you can't even sleep at night. He promises reconciled relationships, but so far everything is still splintered in the family or at work or what. He promises confidence if we walk in the Spirit, right? And yet there are some nights when you don't even know if the sun will rise in the morning. Will the promise live? Chapter 23 raises the question, Chapter 24 answers it. In chapter 24, the page turns and Abraham begins the work of seeking a spouse for his son Isaac. 
And you raise the question. You say, okay, I get it, Sean. That's a powerful question to ask. Will the promise live? Sarah is buried. Therefore, will it stop with her or will she live? But, but why are we asking if the promise will live? Because didn't she have Isaac before she died? And isn't Isaac the one who's going to carry on the promise? Yeah, kind of. See, the problem with Isaac is he's kind of a slow starter. The scholars would say that Isaac is kind of the deadbeat of the patriarchal narratives. Not much happens with Isaac. In fact, truly, most biblical scholars believe that his greatest contribution, Isaac, I mean, what, is he, what did he do, really? I mean, his greatest contribution was to serve as a bridge between Abraham, his father, and Jacob, one of his sons. He's 40 years old, as we determine in a couple of chapters from where we are now. He's 40 years old. He has no wife, but he has no prospects and really no interest. And so Abraham, and that's old for that era. So Abraham takes matters into his own hands. And he sends one of his servants out to go find him a woman. (laughs) And he takes his oldest servant and says, go and find this boy a wife. But then he says, but do me a favor, don't look in our neighborhood. (laughs) He says, don't find someone from Canaan, go home to our people and find him a a good Aramean girl. (laughs) And so the servant takes off with camels and gold and silver to seek out a wife for Isaac so that the promise can live. That's where I want to pick up the text. If you'll join me in chapter 24, beginning in verse 10, we pick up the story. Genesis 24, verse 10 reads this way. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all kinds of choice gifts from his master, and he set out and went to Aram Naharim, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water. This is where it gets good. It was toward the evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. The prayer of every bachelor And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I am standing here by the spring of water, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, coming out with her water jar on her shoulder. Now just hold your place there for just a moment. Can we just take a detour for just a moment in the text? I find that part of the passage fascinating. And it's not just because of all that transpires, but think for just a moment. Here's a servant who is exercising faith, not not the faith of Abraham, his master, but his own faith. 
He's, he's praying for God to be able to unveil his eyes so that he may recognize the potential candidates for the promise to live. And what I find fascinating is as he's praying along, is not a bad example for us. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the greatest examples of faith come to us from those who you would not expect it? Here's a servant who's demonstrating that with every step in this journey, you saturate every step with prayer. Sometimes you and I think that, well, we just won't bother God because if I'm praying about something that's too small, well, I don't want to bother God with that because God surely would not pay attention to the things that are that insignificant to God. But the reality shown here and all throughout the sacred text is there is no thing that is too insignificant for God to be a part of. And he prays in such a way that reveals that this servant has a yieldedness to an awareness that God is in all and around all. Show me, Lord. Reveal to me how this promise can live. But what's fascinating is that the story, the story says it this way. He begins to pray, but before he finishes speaking, before he can get to the amen, there's Rebecca. Which reminds me of that great passage in Psalm 139. It reads this way, O Lord, you have searched me and known my heart. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. And here's the catch. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. It reminds me of the words of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount when talking about prayer. He says, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. So why even ask is the question. Answer so that God may unveil our eyes to begin recognizing the place where God is already answering. God is always two, three, four steps ahead of our prayers. When God makes a promise, God is always multiple moves ahead of us in fulfilling that promise, even when it takes us a while to recognize where it is unfolding around us. You know, speaking of being several steps ahead, recently I, I, I lost several consecutive games of chess to Tommy Heaton big jerk <laughs> yeah Tommy sings great but apparently there's no end to his awesomeness because he <laughs> because he he is readily handing me my hat at the end of every game the thing is to play chess you this ain't checkers right it's not one move two moves to play chess apparently you have to be able to think multiple moves ahead at the same time so if it's my turn and i could move a pawn or a rook or a bishop if i move my pawn i need to think about how many moves he can make if i move my pawn but if i move my bishop or my rook i need to know how many options he has with each of those well that's a decent player a good player then says okay if i move my pawn he can have three options to move if he chooses his second option, I will have seven options. Well, chess masters move not just two, three steps ahead. Those who are chess masters can think 
15 to 20 moves ahead in their head. In other words, I'll move here and you can move there. You have these options. If I choose the fourth option, well, then that gives me 17 options. If I choose the 16th option of your fourth option from my moving of the first option, that you get the point. It has been said that God is the ultimate chess master. That with every possible move that you and I can make, God knows the end result of every possible option. But not only does God know the end result of every possible option, if we choose to change our minds and go with option eight rather than option four, God knows the end result of every possible move that, that, that uh, choice number eight will bring us into infinity. Why is that important? Because of this. You and I have a tendency to believe some very self-defeating things. We are prone to believe that, oh my gosh, God must have a plan for me, and that's great. I will believe that. I'll believe the promise, but here's the problem. If I can't figure out the plan, if I don't choose the right person, if I don't choose the right job, choose the right city, then oh my gosh, I am just, I am just toast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to not have a life that is filled with promise or, or, or fulfillment. But God knows that's how we behave. God knows we rarely get it right. The truth is, God may have a way forward, but if we choose to go outside that way, God knows every possible infinite solution to get us back onto the track where we needed to be. This is why in the eighth chapter of Romans we hear these words, in all things, God works for good for those who love God and who are called according to God's purpose. God works for good. God punches the clock for good. God is at work so that while we are making erred ways, God is constantly hoping and trying and tugging us to get back into the way of our promised life. And God doesn't stop with that. And so the servant is praying, Lord, is it this one? And before he even finishes praying, Sarah, uh, uh, Rebecca, shows up. And we begin to learn something about this one who would be the replacement matriarch. Let's continue reading. It continues in verse 16. The girl was very fair to look upon, a virgin whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me sip a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered her jar upon her head or her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. That gazing in silence is more than just he was stunned at her beauty. He gazed to see if he could see what God sees. Is that not the journey of faith? 
Is that not every prayer you have ever attempted to pray, ever, always, period? Help me see if I can see what you see. Sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong, but the prayer of the servant as he gazed upon her was to see if he could see the promise. And then we're introduced to Rebecca, remarkable Rebecca, who in this passage, it seems to me, is introduced as one who is beautiful, one who is strong, one who is respected, and one who is wise. Rebecca the beautiful. The text even says it very candidly that she was beautiful. This is how it it reads, that she was very fair to look upon. Listen, by the way, dudes, if you're looking for a pickup line, I recommend trying that one. Excuse me, but you're very fair to look upon. Not in text, do it in person, right? But one other translation, the message version, describes her beauty this way. She was stunningly beautiful. Isn't that great? Stunningly beautiful. Another translation says she was smoking hot. <laughs> um, no, not really. That, was, that one's not real. Just, okay. But she was absolutely beautiful. But not only was Rebecca beautiful, she was strong. Did you notice The text said that after she had given drink to the servant, she gave drink to the camels. Well, a camel can drink 30 gallons a day. There were 10 camels. That's 300 gallons, and she had one jug. The text is meant to be provocative here that she single-handedly fed, watered 300 gallons worth of camel, strong Woman. She's not only beautiful and not only strong, but she is respected. After this event that we just read a moment ago, she brings the servant back to her people. She goes back home and introduces him to the father, and they begin the negotiation over a dowry. They begin to talk about what life will look like and be like as she moves away to go live with uh, Isaac and become his wife. And they exchange information about a dowry, and they begin talking about what he will give for the, the, the woman Silver, gold, camels, nose rings. <laughs> you know what you do today still. But the most moving part of the story in that section is that the family made sure she wanted to go. This is what the text says. The father said, we will call the girl and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will. So they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse along with Abraham's servant and his men. She was respected. In a world that was a patriarchal system, it was so rare for a woman to have any voice whatsoever, but they asked for her own consent and permission to pursue the promise. She had a nurse assigned to her, which was kind of a foreshadowing to those of us reading the story to say if she's being sent along with a nurse and she's a virgin, she's never had a child, the promise is going to live. The nurse goes along for the children that she will one day birth. So she's not only beautiful and not only strong, not only is she respected, but maybe the most 
poignant is that she was wise. There is this encounter at the very end of the chapter, chapter 24, when she meets Isaac for the very first time. She is in this caravan to go back to his hometown, and she puts her eyes upon him, and she and he, their eyes meet for the first time. Let's pick up the story. Isaac went out in the evening to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. And Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she slipped quickly from the camel, and she said, Who is this man over there walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The first place in the Bible where it is described that a husband loves his wife is in that moment. But there's comedy even in that moving moment. The text tells us that when she looks up and sees Isaac, she slips from her camel. See, she slipped quickly from the camel. That gives us the impression that with great grace and dignity, she slips down to go meet them as they run across the meadow to each other in slow motion. <laughs> but every Hebrew scholar will tell you that the verb that's used right there for slip doesn't mean slipped gracefully off the camel. It meant fell flat on her face. She fell off the animal in an awkward fail, <laughs> leaving open the question, why? And some have thought, well, maybe it's because Isaac was so beautiful himself. Maybe he was so good-looking that she swooned and fainted and fell right off the camel. But I like the other version better, that maybe he had fallen from the ugly tree, <laughs> and she looked and said, oh, my Lord, what have I gotten into, and fell out. Either option, you choose. But the most powerful line is this. When they first come into contact, the text says, Isaac looked up and saw camels. Rebecca saw Isaac. Isaac saw camels. What's unfolding before you? What's this thing in this beautiful vista before you? What are you looking at when you look into your life? Camels. What about you, Rebecca? Isaac. Yitzhak. Laughter. Promise. She looks up, and what she sees when she sees is the thing that God sees. Promise. And at the end of chapter 24, you and I are shown that, yeah, the promise is going to live because she is going to let it live. She will see what others may not see. The question that that raises for you and me as we conclude today is this. Will the promise live in you? And it totally depends on what you see when you look up into your life. When you look into all that unfolds before you, all the turmoil, all the dust cloud coming your way, all the struggle, the, the stress, the anxiety, all the challenge, when you look up and see into that change, when you look up and see into that unfamiliar territory, that brand new season like you've never known before, when you look into it, do you see camels or do you see promise? 
way of faith is to see the promise before the camels. Let's pray. God, if we're most honest and vulnerable and authentic with you this day, we will confess to you that six out of seven days we see camels. And sometimes on the seventh day it takes till noon before we see any promise. But we recognize, Lord, that you specialize in the capacity for promise to unfold in our lives even despite our flaws and our missteps and our misinterpretation, even despite our worst choices, you are determined that we might experience the unfolding of your promise in us. Will you show us this day how to see Show us how to see. In Christ's name we pray, amen.